Question 46, Part 3 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 46. The Passion of Christ in Twelve Articles. Part 3. Articles 9 through 12. Ninth Article. Whether Christ Suffered at a Suitable Time. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ did not suffer at a suitable time. For Christ's passion was prefigured by the sacrifice of the paschal lamb. Hence the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ our pasch is sacrificed. But the paschal lamb was slain on the fourteenth day at eventide, as is stated in Exodus 12.6. Therefore it seems that Christ ought to have suffered then, which is manifestly false for he was then celebrating the Pasch with his disciples, according to Mark's account in chapter 14, verse 12, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Pasch, whereas it was on the following day that he suffered. Objection to, further, Christ's passion is called his uplifting, according to John 3.14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Christ himself is called the Son of Justice, as we read in Malachi 4.2. Therefore, it seems that he ought to have suffered at the sixth hour, when the sun is at its highest point, and yet the contrary appears from Mark 15.25. It was the third hour, and they crucified him. Objection 3. Further, as the sun is at its highest point in each day at the sixth hour, so also it reaches its highest point in every year at the summer solstice. Therefore, Christ ought to have suffered about the time of the summer solstice, rather than about the vernal equinox. Objection 4. Further, the world was enlightened by Christ's presence in it, according to John 9, 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Consequently, it was fitting for man's salvation that Christ should have lived longer in the world, so that he should have suffered, not in young, but in old age. On the contrary, it is written in John 13, verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour was come for him to pass out of this world to the Father. And in John 2, verse 4, My hour is not yet come. Upon which texts Augustine observes, When he had done as much as he deemed sufficient, then came his hour, not of necessity, but of will, not of condition, but of power. Therefore, Christ died at an opportune time. 
I answer that, as was observed above in Article 1, Christ's passion was subject to his will. But his will was ruled by the divine wisdom which ordereth all things, conveniently and sweetly, according to wisdom 8 verse 1. Consequently, it must be said that Christ's passion was enacted at an opportune time. Hence it is written in the questions on the New and Old Testament, question 55. The Savior did everything in its proper place and season. Reply to Objection 1. Some hold that Christ did die on the fourteenth day of the moon, when the Jews sacrificed the Pasch. Hence it is stated in John 18, verse 28, that the Jews went not into Pilate's hall on the day of the Passion, that they might not be defiled, but that they might eat the Pasch. Upon this, Chrysostom observes in his 82nd homily on the Gospel of John, the Jews celebrated the Pasch then, but he celebrated the Pasch on the previous day, reserving his own slaying until the Friday, when the old Pasch was kept. And this appears to tally with the statement found in John 13, verses 1 through 5, that before the festival day of the Pasch, when supper was done, Christ washed the feet of the disciples. But Matthew's account, found in chapter 26, verse 17, seems opposed to this, that on the first day of the Azims, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Pasch? From which, as Jerome says, since the fourteenth day of the first month is called the day of the Azims, when the Lamb was slain and when it was full moon, it is quite clear that Christ kept the supper on the fourteenth and died on the fifteenth. And this comes out more clearly from Mark 14, verse 12, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Pasch, etc. And from Luke 22, verse 7, the day of the unleavened bread came, on which it was necessary that the Pasch should be killed. Consequently, then, others say that Christ ate the Pasch with his disciples on the proper day, that is, on the fourteenth day of the moon, showing thereby that up to the last day he was not opposed to the law, as Chrysostom says in his homily 81 on the Gospel of Matthew but that the Jews, being busied in compassing Christ's death against the law, put off celebrating the Pasch until the following day. And on this account it is said of them that on the day of Christ's Passion they were unwilling to enter Pilate's hall, that they might not be defiled, but that they might eat the Pasch. But even this solution does not tally with Mark who says, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Pasch. Consequently, Christ and the Jews celebrated the ancient Pasch at the one time. And as Bede says on Luke 22, verses 7 and 8, Although Christ, who is our Pasch, was slain on the following day, that is, on the fifteenth day of the moon, nevertheless, 
on the night when the lamb was sacrificed, delivering to the disciples to be celebrated, the mysteries of his body and blood, and being held and bound by the Jews, he hallowed the opening of his own immolation, that is, of his passion. But the words in John 13 verse 1, before the festival day of the Pasch, are to be understood to refer to the fourteenth day of the moon, which then fell upon the Thursday. For the fifteenth day of the moon was the most solemn day of the Pasch with the Jews, and so the same day which John calls before the festival day of the Pasch, on account of the natural distinction of days, Matthew calls the first day of the unleavened bread, because, according to the rite of the Jewish festivity, the solemnity began from the evening of the preceding day. When it is said, then, that they were going to eat the Pasch on the fifteenth day of the month, it is to be understood that the Pasch there is not called the Paschal Lamb, which was sacrificed on the fourteenth day, but the Paschal food, that is, the unleavened bread, which had to be eaten by the clean. Hence Chrysostom in the same passage gives another explanation, that the Pasch can be taken as meaning the whole feast of the Jews, which lasted seven days. Reply to Objection 2. As Augustine says in his Consensus of the Evangelists, 3. It was about the sixth hour when the Lord was delivered up by Pilate to be crucified, as John relates. For it was not quite the sixth hour, but about the sixth, that is, it was after the fifth, and when part of the sixth had been entered upon until the sixth hour was ended, that the darkness began when Christ hung upon the cross. It is understood to have been the third hour when the Jews clamored for the Lord to be crucified, and it is most clearly shown that they crucified him when they clamored out. Therefore, lest anyone might divert the thought of so great a crime from the Jews to the soldiers, he says, It was the third hour and they crucified him, that they went before all may be found to have crucified him, who at the third hour clamored for his crucifixion. Although they are not wanting some persons who wish the parashev to be understood as the third hour, which John recalls saying, It was the parashev about the sixth hour. For parashev is interpreted preparation. But the true Pasch, which was celebrated in the Lord's Passion, began to be prepared from the ninth hour of the night, namely, when the chief priest said, He is deserving of death. According to John, then, the sixth hour of the Parasev lasts from that hour of the night down to Christ's crucifixion, while, according to Mark, it is the third hour of the day. Still, there are some who contend that this discrepancy is due to the error of a Greek transcriber, since the characters employed by them to represent three and six are somewhat alike. Reply to Objection 3. According to the author of Questions on the Old and New Testament, question 55, our Lord willed to redeem and reform the world by his passion at the time of year at which he had created it, that is, at the equinox. 
it is then that day grows upon night, because by our Saviour's passion we are brought from darkness to light. And since the perfect enlightening will come about at Christ's second coming, therefore the season of his second coming is compared, in Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33, to the summer in these words. When the branch thereof is now tender, and the leaves come forth, you know that summer is nigh, so that also, when you shall see all these things, know ye that it is nigh even at the doors. And then also shall be Christ's greatest exaltation. Reply to Objection 4. Christ willed to suffer while yet young for three reasons. First of all, to commend the more his love by giving up his life for us when he was in his most perfect state of life. Secondly, because it was not becoming for him to show any decay of nature, nor to be subject to disease, as stated above, in question 14, article 4. Thirdly, that by dying and rising at an early age, Christ might exhibit beforehand in his own person the future condition of those who rise again. Hence it is written in Ephesians 4, verse 13, Until we all meet into the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ. Tenth Article Whether Christ Suffered in a Suitable Place Objection 1. It would seem that Christ did not suffer in a suitable place. For Christ suffered according to his human nature, which was conceived in Nazareth and born in Bethlehem. Consequently, it seems that he ought not to have suffered in Jerusalem, but in Nazareth or Bethlehem. Objection to, further, the reality ought to correspond with the figure. But Christ's passion was prefigured by the sacrifices of the old law, and these were offered up in the temple. Therefore, it seems that Christ ought to have suffered in the temple, and not outside the city gate. Objection 3. Further, the medicine should correspond with the disease. But Christ's passion was the medicine against Adam's sin, and Adam was not buried in Jerusalem, but in Hebron, for it is written in Joshua 14, verse 15, The name of Hebron was before called Kariath Arba. Adam, the greatest in the land of the Enishims, was laid there. On the contrary, it is written in Luke 13, verse 33, It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Therefore, it was fitting that he should die in Jerusalem. I answer that, according to the author of the Questions on the Old and New Testament, question 55. The Savior did everything in its proper place and season. Because, as all things are in his hands, so are all places, and consequently, since Christ suffered at a suitable time, so did he in a suitable place. Reply to Objection 1.
Christ died most appropriately in Jerusalem. First of all, because Jerusalem was God's chosen place for the offering of sacrifices to himself, and these figurative sacrifices foreshadowed Christ's passion, which is a true sacrifice according to Ephesians 5 verse 2. He hath delivered himself for us, an oblation and a sacrifice to God, for an odor of sweetness. Hence Bede says in a homily, When the passion drew nigh, our Lord willed to draw nigh to the place of the passion, that is to say, to Jerusalem, whither he came five days before the Pasch, just as, according to the legal precept, the paschal lamb was led to the place of immolation five days before the Pasch, which is the tenth day of the moon. Secondly, because the virtue of his passion was to be spread over the whole world, he wished to suffer in the center of the habitable world, that is, in Jerusalem. Accordingly, it is written in Psalm 73, verse 12, But God is our King before ages. He hath wrought salvation in the midst of the earth, that is, in Jerusalem, which is called the navel of the earth. Confer Jerome's comment on Ezekiel 5.5. Thirdly, because it was specially in keeping with his humility, that, as he chose the most shameful manner of death, so likewise it was part of his humility that he did not refuse to suffer in so celebrated a place. Hence Pope Leo says in his first homily on the Epiphany, he who had taken upon himself the form of a servant chose Bethlehem for his nativity and Jerusalem for his passion. Fourthly, he willed to suffer in Jerusalem, where the chief priests dwelt, to show that the wickedness of his slayers arose from the chiefs of the Jewish people. Hence it is written in Acts 4 verse 27, there assembled together in this city against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Reply to Objection 2 For three reasons Christ suffered outside the gate, and not in the temple nor in the city. First of all, that the truth might correspond with the figure. For the calf and the goat which were offered in most solemn sacrifice for expiation on behalf of the entire multitude, were burnt outside the camp, as commanded in Leviticus 16, verse 27. Hence it is written in Hebrews 13, verse 27, For the bodies of those beasts, whose blood is brought into the holies by the high priest for sin, are burnt without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people by his own blood, suffered without the gate. Secondly, to set us the example of shunning worldly conversation. Accordingly, the passage continues, Let us go forth, therefore, to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Thirdly, as Chrysostom says in a sermon on the Passion, The Lord was not willing to suffer under a roof, nor in the Jewish temple lest the Jews might take away the saving sacrifice, and lest you might think he was offered for that people only. 
Consequently, it was beyond the city and outside the walls that you may learn it was a universal sacrifice, an oblation for the whole world, a cleansing for all. Reply to Objection 3 According to Jerome in his commentary on Matthew 27, verse 33, Someone explained the place of Calvary as being the place where Adam was buried, and that it was so called because the skull of the first man was buried there. A pleasing interpretation indeed, and one suited to catch the ear of the people, but still not the true one. For the spots where the condemned are beheaded are outside the city and beyond the gates, deriving thence the name of Calvary, that is, of the beheaded. Jesus, accordingly, was crucified there, that the standards of martyrdom might be uplifted over what was formerly the place of the condemned. But Adam was buried close by Hebron and Arba, as we read in the book of Jesus ben Nave. But Jesus was to be crucified in the common spot of the condemned, rather than beside Adam's sepulchre, to make it manifest that Christ's cross was the remedy not only for Adam's personal sin, but also for the sin of the entire world. Eleventh Article Whether it was fitting for Christ to be crucified with thieves. Objection 1. It would seem unfitting for Christ to have been crucified with thieves, because it is written in Second Corinthians 6.14, what participation hath justice with injustice? But for our sakes, Christ, of God is made unto us justice, according to 1 Corinthians one thirty. whereas iniquity applies to thieves. Therefore it was not fitting for Christ to be crucified with thieves. Objection to further, on Matthew 26, verse 35, Though I should die with thee, I will not deny thee. According to Origen, commenting on the Gospel of Matthew, observes, It was not men's lot to die with Jesus, since he died for all. Again, on Luke 22, verse 33, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and death. Ambrose says, Our Lord's passion has followers, but not equals. It seems, then, much less fitting for Christ to suffer with thieves. Objection 3. Further, it is written in Matthew 27, verse 44, that the thieves who were crucified with him reproached him. But in Luke 22, verse 42, it is stated that one of them who were crucified with Christ cried out to him, Lord, remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. It seems, then, that Besides the blasphemous thieves, there was another man who did not blaspheme him, and so the evangelist's account does not seem to be accurate when it says that Christ was crucified with thieves. On the contrary, it was foretold by Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12, and he was reputed with the wicked. I answer that Christ was crucified between thieves, from one intention on the part of the Jews, and from quite another on the part of God's ordaining. 
as to the intention of the Jews, Chrysostom remarks in his homily 87 on the Gospel of Matthew, that they crucified the two thieves, one on either side, that he might be made to share their guilt. But it did not happen so, because mention is never made of them, whereas his cross is honored everywhere. Kings lay aside their crowns to take up the cross, on their purple robes, on their diadems, on their weapons, on the consecrated table, everywhere the cross shines forth. As to God's ordinance, Christ was crucified with thieves because, as Jerome says on Matthew 27, verse 33, As Christ became accursed of the cross for us, so for our salvation he was crucified as a guilty one among the guilty. Secondly, as Pope Leo observes in his homily on the Passion, two thieves were crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left, to set forth by the very appearance of the gibbet that separation of all men which shall be made in his hour of judgment. And Augustine, on John 7, verse 36, The very cross, if thou mark it well, was a judgment seat. For the judge being set in the midst, the one who believed was delivered, the other who mocked him was condemned. Already he has signified what he shall do to the quick and the dead. Some he will set on his right, others on his left hand. Thirdly, according to Hilary, in his commentary on Matthew, Two thieves are set, one upon his right and one upon his left, to show that all mankind is called to the sacrament of his passion. But because of the cleavage between believers and unbelievers, the multitude is divided into right and left, those on the right being saved by the justification of faith. Fourthly, because as Vede says on Mark 15, verse 27, the thieves crucified with our Lord denote those who, believing in and confessing Christ, either endure the conflict of martyrdom or keep the institutes of stricter observance. But those who do the like for the sake of everlasting glory are denoted by the faith of the thief on the right, while others who do so for the sake of human applause copy the mind and behavior of the one on the left. Reply to Objection 1. Just as Christ was not obliged to die, but willingly submitted to death so as to vanquish death by his power, so neither deserved he to be classed with thieves, but willed to be reputed with the ungodly that he might destroy ungodliness by his power. Accordingly, Chrysostom says in his homily 84 on the Gospel of John that to convert the thief upon the cross and lead him into paradise was no less a wonder than to shake the rocks. Reply to Objection 2. It was not fitting that anyone else should die with Christ from the same cause as Christ. Hence Origen continues thus in the same passage. All had been under sin, and all required that another should die for them, not they for others. Reply to Objection 3. 
as Augustine says in his Consensus of the Evangelists 3, we can understand Matthew as putting the plural for the singular when he said, the thieves reproached him. Or it may be said with Jerome that at first both blasphemed him, but afterwards one believed in him on witnessing the wonders. Twelfth article. Whether Christ's passion is to be attributed to his Godhead. Objection one. It would seem that Christ's passion is to be attributed to his Godhead, for it is written in First Corinthians 2.8, If they had known it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. But Christ is the Lord of glory in respect of his Godhead. Therefore, Christ's passion is attributed to him in respect of his Godhead. Objection to further, the principle of men's salvation is the Godhead itself, according to Psalm 36, verse 39. But the salvation of the just is from the Lord. Consequently, if Christ's passion did not appertain to his Godhead, it would seem that it could not produce fruit in us. Objection 3. Further, the Jews were punished for slaying Christ as for murdering God himself, as is proved by the gravity of the punishment. Now this would not be so if the passion were not attributed to the Godhead. Therefore, Christ's passion should be so attributed. On the contrary, Athanasius says, The word is impassable whose nature is divine. But what is impassable cannot suffer. Consequently, Christ's passion did not concern his Godhead. I answer that, as stated above in question 2, articles 1, 2, 3, and 6, the union of the human nature with the divine was effected in the person, in the hypostasis, in the suppositum, yet observing the distinction of natures, so that it is the same person and hypostasis of the divine and human natures, while each nature retains that which is proper to it. And therefore, as stated above in question 16, article 4, the passion is to be attributed to the suppositum of the divine nature, not because of the divine nature which is impassable, but by reason of the human nature. Hence, in a synodal epistle of Cyril we read, If any man does not confess that the word of God suffered in the flesh and was crucified in the flesh, let him be anathema. Therefore Christ's passion belongs to the suppositum of the divine nature by reason of the passable nature assumed, but not on account of the impassable divine nature. Reply to Objection 1. The Lord of glory is said to be crucified, not as the Lord of glory, but as a man capable of suffering. Reply to Objection 2. As is said in a sermon of the Council of Ephesus, Christ's death being, as it were, God's death, namely, by union in person, 
destroyed death, since he who suffered was both God and man, for God's nature was not wounded, nor did it undergo any change by those sufferings. Reply to Objection 3 As the passage quoted goes on to say, The Jews did not crucify one who was simply a man. They inflicted their presumptions upon God. For suppose a prince to speak by word of mouth, and that his words are committed to writing on a parchment and sent out to the cities, and that some rebel tears up the document, he will be led forth to endure the death sentence, not for merely tearing up a document, but as destroying the imperial message. Let not the Jew then stand in security as crucifying a mere man, since what he saw was as the parchment, but what was hidden under it was the imperial word, the son by nature, not the mere utterance of a tongue. End of question 46 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.